all of those tasks have to be trained and that's where DARE is working with industry and academia. You know, we have a very close relationship with Centennial. We're based here and we want to work hand in hand with them and industry to make this kind of training available and upskill the entire workforce, especially as there's attrition and there's going to be a need for people in the near future. Well, and I think that's going to be pivotal to ensuring a skilled workforce moving forward is that partnership. The partnership between, I'll use this example, Centennial and DARE and the aerospace sector to be able to collectively or collaboratively determine what are those emergent skills, where are the gaps going to be created by example because of the retiring workforce. Hello and welcome to another episode of Making It in Ontario, the official podcast of the Trillium Network for Advanced Manufacturing. I'm your host, Nick Persichilli, and in this episode, I'm chatting with Spiro Kakoudis, Manager of Workforce Development and Sustainability at DARE, and Michelle DeCoste, Dean of the Centre for Online Learning and Micro-Credentials at Centennial College, about workforce development in aerospace manufacturing. Both guests are aerospace industry veterans, and today, they're putting this experience to work by helping the aerospace manufacturing industry develop the workforce of the future. Building things that fly is complex. Getting an airplane to slip the surly bonds of Earth requires a convergence of many scientific and professional disciplines, of countless materials, of hours of precise work in research and development, and mathematical calculations I'm sure most of us have never heard of. But we've done it here in Ontario, and we've taught ourselves to do it well. All those notes, all those variables, all the lessons, all the insights, all the formulas needed to make a flying machine in Ontario, we have it all. Our aerospace professionals are among the best in the world, but they're human and they're retiring. And we need to download their decades of institutional knowledge for the next generation of aerospace manufacturers. But Nick, aren't you always talking about how new technology will help improve manufacturing for the future? Isn't industrial automation and Industry 4.0 making everything automatic? Well, the answer is a resounding kinda. Industrial automation and Industry 4.0 are just tools. As any tradesperson worth their salt knows, it's not the tools that make one good at their job. It's the skill of the tradesperson wielding them. Some years ago, Gibson Guitar made a self-tuning robot guitar. And this instrument, as you can imagine, had the ability to tune itself automatically and to switch between various tunings instantly. It had built-in effects and a host of other digital features. It's a technological work of art from one of the music industry's most prolific manufacturers. Now, think about putting Eric Clapton and me in the same room. Do you think it matters what guitar Eric Clapton is playing? No, he's always going to be better than me, even if I'm playing that robot guitar. The work Spiro and Michelle are doing today is essentially capturing the collective knowledge of the Eric Clapton's in aerospace manufacturing and making it available to the next generation. Spiro and Michelle's work is important and I'm happy they're doing it because the next generation of great aerospace ideas will need both experience and innovation to get off the ground. So once again, I'm at DARE. Once again, I'm chatting with some, again, some new friends. I love coming here. Directly to my left, please introduce yourself. Good morning, I'm Michelle DeCoste, and I'm Dean of our Center for Online Learning and Micro-Credentials with Centennial College. Good morning, Michelle. And to my right. Uh, good morning, my name is Spiro Kakudis. I'm the Manager of Workforce Development and Sustainability at DARE. Sounds awesome. So yes, today we are discussing workforce development and sustainability. So. I'm going to throw this out to the both of you right now because I'm always interested, uh, and you know, whoever wants to jump in first, uh, by all means do so. 
Tell me a little bit about the path to where you guys got to here today. Sure, I'll start first. So I've been with Centennial College for about 23 years, but I started my journey in the aviation sector with Transport Canada. So with the regulatory authority in numerous roles across the organization. Uh, and then about 20 years into it, decided I needed a bit of a change. And so I came over and I joined Centennial College, knowing the college well from my work with Transport Canada. It really was the center that I wanted to align with. And so I came into the college, uh, did a very short uh, stint as faculty in our aviation programs, and then had the opportunity to actually become the academic chair for our aviation programs here at Centennial College. And so I did that for about 10 years, and then another opportunity, another passion of mine, as it was my route into the sector, was lifelong learning. And so I then had the opportunity to join the team in uh, continuing education lifelong learning, which is now the Center for Online Learning and Micro-Credential as Dean. That sounds awesome. So going back to that first job you mentioned, what sorts of things were they regulating and, and what sorts of things were you monitoring there? So I worked in Transport Canada in the aircraft maintenance and engineering or airworthiness area uh, with the regulatory authority here in the Ontario region. My primary focus was licensing of aircraft maintenance engineers, curriculum monitoring, curriculum development with community colleges, uh, and accreditation of community college programs here in the province of Ontario. Uh, Spiro, now it's your turn. Okay, well, uh, you know, I've been in the aerospace industry for over 40 years and first got interested in, in it back at the age of nine when I watched uh, Neil Armstrong land on the moon, believe it or not. Wow. Yeah, so that really uh, perked my in interest. So I w went to University of Toronto, did uh, aerospace engineering with engineering science, got my master's, and then went to work for de Havilland Aircraft in 1985. That uh, I specialized in advanced materials, advanced composites, because I, I had a summer job at the Aerospace Institute, University of Toronto Institute for Aerospace Studies, and I ma was making uh, composite material type test specimens. Some of them flew on the uh, space shuttle in the long dura duration exposure facility. I also did some stuff with composite bazookas, but that got me into advanced composites, and that got me the first job at de Havilland. I'm sorry, composite bazookas? Yes, uh, bazookas that were made out of composite. I don't know what happened to it, but it, it, that's where the testing was, was going. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So uh, after de Havilland, it was bought by the Boeing company. It became Boeing Canada, and that gave me some really amazing opportunities going to Seattle, seeing the types of things that they were doing, and uh, it really was a great experience. Subsequent to that, it was bought by Bombardier, and I was in the materials and processes. I was a Transport Canada DAR for interiors at the time as well, so I certified aircraft interiors and also went into the supply chain looking at uh, a lot of uh, small companies that we were offloading parts to. And then continuing that, 9-11 <laughs> hit and I went down to the US. So I worked in the US and California for about four years at a company making composite parts for like the starting of the 787, uh, a number of Boeing programs, nuclear submarines, rockets, you name it. It was a real interesting experience. But then I came back to Canada, went to work at Messier Doughty Landing Gear Systems for a few years. I had an interesting stint at Magna where we were developing a composite hood for the Cadillac CTSV. That was about three years. And then after that, I came back to de Havilland uh, in the airworthiness department. I was the section chief 
for the Dash 8. Uh, COVID hit, the Havlin was sold, uh, and uh, I became a consultant and ended up here at, at DARE, which is a fantastic opportunity. So, That's incredible. So between the two of you, both of you have seen a fair bit of development and evolution, and now you're working specifically on workforce. Michelle, let's go back to some of the stuff that you were doing back uh, in, the, in your first job there. How has the job that you were monitoring back then, how has that evolved and changed over the years to today? So I've been far enough removed from that world not to feel comfortable specifically talking about new technologies. You know, I can tell you that the skill sets, okay. as with any occupations, um, would have progressed and would have, would have changed. What I can tell you is that it is definitely suffering from an aging population. And I would suggest that's a pretty universal statement for many occupations across aviation uh, and aerospace. And so the uptake of training within individual organizations or seeking upskilling or training or workforce development, whichever term you want to use, uh, is more important now than it ever has been in the past. Spiro, I would, I would suspect, is uh, probably your better individual to talk specifically about individual skill sets. Yeah, well, uh, let me give you a little bit of history here because it's Please. very interesting how the industry has um, transformed in a sense. When I started at the Havilland in the 80s, you know, we were an aircraft manufacturer as well. We used to make things in-house. We had Cincinnati Millicron milling machines. We had a huge composite shop. We were making things. What happened then is as the aircraft became more complex and systems were more complex, structures were more complex, the federal, the regulations governing those, uh, led by the FAA, Transport Canada, European authorities, they became much more complex too. So certifying an aircraft became a much more expensive and complicated process. What that led to was the, the industry going from a manufacturing type of industry to offloading and getting risk-sharing partners, and that sort of spread stuff out into the supply chain. Uh, the reason for that was you would get a risk-sharing partner, they would share in the risks and, and costs, but also in the, in the benefits. So if you look at something like the 787 and say, you know, do a, a search on people supplying that, you're going to see all sorts of companies and it's all over the world. The other reason for that was, you know, it, it costs a lot of overhead. Like, you know, the people that make parts are bringing you the money, right? Or basically, the, the inventory, the, the revenue. Supporting those, you have materials and process engineers, design engineers, methods people, quality assurance people. That's overhead, and they're critical to the process, but that costs a lot of money. Moving stuff out into the supply chain, specialty shops, people who specialize, say, in composites or a certain kind of assemblies, that also reduced the cost. So the industry transformed, and it went from manufacturing to an integration type of mode. So it, it did has changed, and, and now what you'll find is companies like Bombardier or de Havilland, they're not making a lot of stuff. They're basically assembling things, and stuff's made all over the world. That led to uh, things like low-cost manufacturing centers. So we went from jobs that were uh, localized, centralized, say here in Ontario or uh, in wherever the aircraft's being built, to all over the world. That's kind of changing now because those low-cost manufacturing centers aren't so low-cost anymore. And you also had 9-11, which made things more complicated with regards to shipping and you know who you trusted to make these parts, and then COVID hit. So it's starting to make a lot more sense to 
uh, do things locally, and, and that's why it's important to develop our supply chain locally. It, it would be greener, right? We're not transporting things all from all over the world. You can make things more efficiently. I've seen companies that had to send stuff to Texas to do uh, an inspection. It, take, it cost them money to, to send it, to receive it. It cost them a month of time in their process. And if something went wrong, you know, it, with just-in-time manufacturing, it's a big risk to be doing stuff like that. So it makes a lot of sense to do things locally, and that's why it's important for us to develop the supply chain here, increase our skill sets, and not lose that tremendous uh, capability that we have in aerospace in Ontario. So that's, that's why I'm with DARE, and it's very important. Now, mirroring what Michelle said, the workforce is aging. Uh, a lot of the small companies I've been to, you know, they have a lot of older people who are extremely knowledgeable, but transferring that knowledge to new younger people and motivating the younger people to want these jobs, that's a real challenge and that's something we face and what DARE is going to work towards. Spiro, can you clarify something for me? You were mentioning uh, something about uh, risk sharing. Yeah, it would be like a, basically a, a partnership, right? So in other words, if I'm a new aircraft to design and build and certify that. The certification is really expensive. It takes a lot of time, a lot of testing, and it's expensive. So if you have a risk-sharing partner, someone that's gonna design and build and manufacture and certify your wing, that lessens the burden on the OEM doing it, and it has a partner there who is gonna share in the risks, share in the costs, but also share in the benefits. So that's happening a lot more today. And if you look at the 787 or some of the Bombardier aircraft, you'll see who are the major companies, tier one suppliers that are supporting those. Of course, the OEM still has the overall uh, responsibility. So whatever someone risk-sharing partner does, it's still monitored and overseen, but the cost is, is significantly reduced. Yeah, it's like a distributed manufacturing model. Right. Yeah. That sounds like the model for automotive manufacturing. Is that correct, or am I, or am I missing something? You know, I, I would say it's, it's, uh, it's a similar model. I, I think in the case of, as Spiro has said, in the case of aviation or aerospace, it's such a high cost, high stakes environment. So I think automotive has been doing it probably a lot longer than the aerospace industry has been doing it. But really that distributed model, like automotive, number one, provides employability, right? Because you're engaging with um, other contributors to the manufacturing of the parts and the systems for the aircraft. And to Spiro's point, you're also sharing that risk, both from an employment or workforce perspective, uh, but also from an overall cost uh, factor in the manufacturing sector. So yeah, simil similar, I think aerospace may have been a bit, bit later to the party for that model, uh, but certainly it's a prevalent model now. And of course, if you can go to a smaller company that specializes in something, you're figuring, you know, they're going to do a better job. They're not going to have the same, you know, we can reduce our overheads. They'll have a better supply stream to us. And it, it makes sense in many ways. So I've spoken with, with people from DARE on, on a few occasions. One of my first conversations with DARE was with uh, Alex Tasoulis, and we had a fantastic discussion about supply chain and training the supply chain. And he had a lot of insights. He, he likened it to if you're a hockey team, you train your whole hockey team at the same time. If you're a military, you train your whole military at the same time. You, you, you don't piecemeal it out. What sorts of skills are needed in today's aerospace sector? 
that you guys are working on right now? Because I noticed when I came in, there was a classroom going on. Like there are students and they were learning. What are they learning about? So here on this campus here, there are Downsview campus or Bombard J Aerospace campus. Uh, and so the students you're seeing on here are in one of a multitude of, of programs, aircraft maintenance engineering, avionics, advanced manufacturing and aerospace, a number of, uh, of programs that are run. And so I'll give you an example of our aircraft maintenance program. The goal is over the two years that they're with us to gain the skills, knowledge ex and experiences to be able to enter the aviation or maintenance repair and overhaul component of the industry as an entry-level technician. They will then work with their comp that company or other companies uh, to become a licensed aircraft maintenance engineer. So that's what you're in the hangar. That's likely what you were seeing today, uh, only because I know the programs are still running <laughs> in, that, in that particular, uh, particular area. You know, from a, a skill set, um, again, I'll let Spiro talk more to the sort of the technical pieces. One of the areas that not just specific to aviation or aerospace is some of those softer skills. So we talk about the ability to communicate. In the case of aviation and aerospace, it is all about a team, right? It's about a team of professionals maintaining the aircraft, manufacturing the aircraft, operating the aircraft. So it's about that team. And so team building, communication, uh, interpersonal relationships, critical thinking skills, all of which they gain through their initial training as they're graduating from our college. But you talked about having to continually train. There are also skills that need to be continually honed once they've entered uh, the workforce. Can you tell me what some of those, cause I, I love geeking out. What, what, uh, what are some of those skills? So when you, uh, we'll use communication. So when you think about communication skills and you and I communicating or, you know, we're communicating here, but then you think about written communications. And so it's really important on a team when you're in a maintenance and repair situation to be able to document, right, as a form of communication so that the next team picking up that work understands where you were, what you've done, what needs to be done, what compliance areas are you aligning with? And so there's that written communication, just as an example. That's, see, that's cool. I, I, I never thought of reporting your actions as a form of communication. In this particular sector, extremely, extremely important to be able to write reports, document your activities and your actions, and understanding that all of this contributes to the certification and airworthiness of an aircraft, right? So when you think about how that work is done, documenting what parts were used for parts control, you know, and traceability, right through to an aircraft maintenance engineer certifying the, air, the aircraft for flight, for example. So communication takes many forms, and written communication, I would argue in most sectors, but in this sector, highly, highly important. And it's a skill that we all need to hone over time. I never would have thought of that. Because like, yeah, okay, you just, you fill out a form. Well, what form? And why? And why, yes. Why? Why are, why are you filling? Are you just, you know, are we just checking boxes? Well, no, you're communicating critical information either to a regulator, to a team member, to your employer. Written communication to me is equally as important as verbal communication. That's, I'm ashamed to say I wouldn't have put those, because I, I just, 
I, w- I would have thought that like, oh, okay, I mean, you just write the report. I mean, you show up for a job like this, you obviously know how to, r- I would have assumed you know how to write, but you don't necessarily know how to communicate. Through that writing. Interesting. You know, think about if an instruction, so, I don't know, pick a, I was soldering something, and I, and I wasn't able to communicate the medium that I used, the equipment that I used, or what, what standard I was soldering to. Spiro comes in behind me. He's installing what I have just soldered on an avionics component, for lack of a better example. And, and I, don't say to, I don't share that information with Spiro. Well, Spiro doesn't have the confidence that I've used the right medium, that I've used the right process according to the standards established for that activity or that piece of work. Right, so now Spiro is taking the risk that I just knew what I was doing. Uh, going back to the types of skills, uh, there's a bit of a crisis now. I mean, almost like the skilled trades. When you look at the different types of aerospace jobs that are, are needed, there are so many different things that are done. I mean, we've had meetings with certain companies, and, and you know, there's going to be a shortage due to attrition and other factors of people who you know just do assembly type jobs or uh, install systems and so on. But not just that, uh, you know, you have. Uh, quality people, engineering people, liaison engineers, stress engineers, all these jobs are gonna be in short supply and getting people to do that is gonna be a real challenge in Ontario, not just Ontario, but everywhere. And you know, the fact is we have to be able to stimulate young people to be interested in this, have good jobs that uh, offer opportunities for growth and and, uh, development and some things that are interesting to them, so. If we can put in good training programs and and make it interesting and, and challenge young people, I think we're going to have a, a success story. It's very important that we're going to create people that can hit the, the ground running and contribute right away because it takes time to get a person up to speed. Well, and I would add to that that the success of what you're seeing here at Centennial College is also very much dependent on relationships with organizations and other institutions within the sector. Like manufacturing an airplane, we don't do it alone. Uh, you know, through our program advisory committees where we have representatives who provide some guidance on what's changing in the sector, what's changing in the industry, and guide, guides our curriculum. Uh, to organizations like Bombardier, who have you know, been a, a fantastic partner in the development of this campus. And, and that's where DARE, uh, you know, my, my organization, we want to be a bridge between academia and industry. Uh, you know, we sort of understand both of them and we want to facilitate, to create those links and uh, sort of um, uh, organize the activities to, so that we can streamline things and, and get people into the industry better. At the same time, develop the supply chain, help them upscale their capabilities and so on so that they can answer the needs of OEMs and so on and have the industry grow in Ontario. So let's get down to some nitty gritty. Tell me about your jobs. What are you working on? What is next on your to-do list for the day, the week, the month, the quarter in your roles as they are? Um, So I can share mine. So our areas of focus are workforce development, lifelong learning, and online learning in a nutshell. It's much broader than that, uh, but for, for this conversation, the focus on workforce development is heightened probably more than I've seen in a very long time. 
our areas of focus are really on upskilling and reskilling, so partnering with business and industry to customize training for their specific needs. So we're really focused on working with partners, whether they're community agencies, community organizations interested in internationally trained healthcare providers trying to you know, gain entrance into the Canadian uh, workforce, or organizations like Bombardier who have technical skills, training gaps that they've identified, working with our partners like DARE in customizing training for their particular uh, workforce. Uh, we also are focused on the creation of micro-credentials, relatively new term that we know very, very well, may not be as well known outside of academia, uh, but really micro-credentials are short, specifically targeted modules of training that validate an individual's skill, knowledge, or experience, in a nutshell. But it comes with a validation or an assessment of that skill that individuals can then take to their employer, you know, share, share through their networks, uh, and we align all of that specifically with industry needs. Would report writing be one of those micro-credentials? I don't think it is right now, but that is a really good area to think about. Because <laughs> what, you, I, I'm sorry, Michelle, but you kind of blew my mind on that when it's just like, yeah, you got to teach people to write a report of, yeah, what kind of solder were you using? Yeah, we have, uh, you know, we do have communications courses, you know, verbal communication, presentation skills. We do have report writing in specific sectors. However, it is not a micro-credential. That is a great tip. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad I could help. <laughs> yeah. Because, I, I mean, that comment actually kind of triggered another thought in my head. The aerospace industry, because there is such a specific need to know exactly what the material was, what torque it was torqued to, what this it was set to, what that it was set to, because of that, you have all of these, like you said, an aging workforce that knows how to work with, they know the rules, they know the numbers, they know what it needs to be, but they still use paper. Is there room for improvement in aerospace's adoption of automation? Okay, so there's, there is a lot of truth in that. So basically the way it works is Every part that's manufactured, or most of them, have to have uh, a high level of traceability. So you, you have, say, methods engineering creates uh, planning documents, which are might be called shop travelers, whatever, that outline... I've heard that, sh travelers. Yeah, yeah, outline very specific uh, sets of instructions for the worker to follow. And as he's going through, he might uh, record information manually or have a, an inspection stamp or whatever. And this creates a lot of documentation. So all the parts have that. Some people have done that now online where you have uh, terminals and so on, but a lot of the industry is still working to documentation. So when you have an assembly, uh, it could be a complicated assembly, you might end up with a huge stack of paperwork that goes with that which uh, basically are all the manufacturing work instruction, uh, laboratory test reports, if there's in-process testing or inspection, uh, the material traceability, uh, any tests that were done after the fact to validate what the assembly or system is, it ends up being a lot of paper and that has to be maintained. Like the quality systems requirements are that you maintain your traceability for years, uh, depending on, on the customer. Some of them are forever, right? 
So you end up with places like Iron Mountain that have stacks and stacks and boxes of documentation. Like the companies can't even maintain it anymore. It's, it's so much paperwork. So it is very true that, that a lot of paper is used, still being used. But now, you know, places are developing uh, online systems that you can uh, put these uh, manufacturing instructions it could be visual work instructions and you can record operations and inspections and so on and and that's much better obviously right and that's interesting so is are is that the kind of training that you guys are working on right now to train people into knowing how to better document digitally so our the way we focus is what is the technology that is prevalently used in a particular sector or industry and so using this exact example, if there is a technology for tracking of components and parts that meets the regulatory requirements, meets business and industry requirements, then we develop content and curriculum to train up the workforce as required by the employers. I, you know, I would ask Spiro, is there a prevalence of technology available to organizations for that? Uh, because we train to the future, so we do our best to look to what those future skills might be. So if there you know, is an emergent technology that will capture and track all of that for business and industry, then we will go ahead and we will develop uh, a rapid training very specifically to that piece of software. Right. And, and it is highly desirable to have that because, first of all, it lessens the documentation, but it speeds up the process. Like it takes time for people to write things down or do inspection stamps and go through the all this documentation, ensure it's correctly filled out. And there are people who not only fill it out, but there are people who also inspect check it and inspect it but where it also gets complicated is and you know from the say continuing airworthiness aspect of, a, of an aircraft say uh, something happens on, a, on an aircraft a, a component fails there's a huge analysis that takes place on that to say okay why did this fail and so on was it made in a batch you have to go back and do a huge analysis and you might have to go back and look at documentation that's where the traceability comes in and being able to do that is not a simple exercise it, it is a lot of uh, it takes a lot of time and effort if if things were sort of online and you can do much quicker searches that would help the process quite a bit but you know a lot of these things do take time and and for sure there's a desire to eliminate the, the paperwork but not the information but to have it streamlined and make it more efficient so definitely the industry is moving towards that but it does take a lot of time there's an expense involved margins are very tight in aerospace so these kind of things you have to do a cost-benefit analysis you have to train your workforce it, it is a it's not a small task but there are organizations that are, have gone that way and for sure it's much more efficient and there is a desire so that is one aspect of the training but you know it's just basic you know operators on the floor can they drill assemble do various processes all of those tasks have to be trained and that's where DARE is working with industry and academia you know we have a very close relationship with Centennial we're based here and uh, you know we want to work hand in hand with them and in industry to make this kind of training available and ups upskill the, uh, the, the entire workforce especially as there's attrition and there's going to be a need for people in the near future. Well and I think that's going to be pivotal to ensuring a skilled workforce moving forward is that partnership 
the partnership between, I'll use this example, Centennial and DARE and the aerospace sector to be able to collectively or collaboratively determine what is what are those emergent skills? Where are the gaps going to be created by example because of the retiring workforce? You know, you used the example earlier of that transfer of knowledge. Well, how do you get to a training plan, a training piece that will fill the gaps that are gonna be created by that retiring community? And it's only through that partnership that we stay abreast of what is needed, and that could be very, very different from organization to organization, and that we are ready and prepared to provide the training to fill those, uh, fill those gaps. So that, that idea of partnership absolutely is gonna be needed moving forward to ensure in all sectors that we have the skilled workforce that we're going to need moving forward. And you know, and, and it's sort of two components. One, you ha might have like a general training, train new people uh, to do these operations, but there could be very specific sort of optimized training or specialized training for a company that might have a very specific need. So we're working closely with Centennial to offer both of those streams. The other component is there are a lot of immigrants coming in. They might have certain uh, skills and so on, it, it would be getting the, those people into the workforce because uh, we can take advantage of what they know already, have them you know, possibly hit, hit the ground running a little bit quicker. But we got to explore all of those different avenues and, and be ready and uh, support the, uh, the supply chain and the OEMs and tier ones. Yeah, and we have examples of, of that. You know, one that is current is with a community organization who supports internationally trained healthcare professionals. They could be nurses, doctors, dental hygienists, uh, but they're trying to gain entry to that workforce here in Canada. And so with the community organization, they're very knowledgeable on what those gaps are. And so we work with that community organization to develop very specific and customized training pieces. We host those training, we leverage the expertise of our amazing faculty that we have here at, at the institution to be able to fill the gaps for them so they can gain entry to the workforce. We know that our population is not growing at the rate that it has been in the past. We know that immigration is the greatest source of qualified workforce. And so working with partners to integrate their expertise into the workforce is absolutely key. So that's just an example of what uh, Spiro is referring to. Spiro, you got into this because you saw the moon landing. Right. As a young child, I, I, I can only imagine what that must have been like. We at Trillium understand that manufacturing, we understand the importance of manufacturing, we understand the benefits, we understand all of the advantages, and having an aerospace manufacturing sector within your borders is, well, it's a crown jewel, right? It's, as Baris said, it, you know, it's a crown jewel, and if you don't use it, you lose it. The advanced manufacturing sector needs more people. What is it going to take to get more young people into this, what I can clearly tell is an amazing sector? I was recently in Florida. I, I, whenever I'm in Florida, I always do go down to the Cape. I go down to Cape Canaveral. And they, they, I saw a lot of movies and programs that they were showing there where they were talking to young people who were bright-eyed, boys and girls, and you know they were fascinated about space, astronautics, being an astronaut, and so on. 
right now we're in a, a, an era where you have you know spacex and things like that where that imagination is starting to be stimulated again so we're at a real critical time where we can if we can capture that interest we can maintain our capabilities here but it takes it starts at an early age interestingly enough and i don't have any statistics but you know i saw equal numbers of boys and girls uh being being excited about space when i was in engineering there were probably less than 10 percent girls in my class i don't know what it's like today I don't think it's that much higher, and I go. You'll probably get into it in your next uh, podcast on this one, but there's a loss there. Somehow the enthusiasm is is being lost, but it comes down to stimulating the mind, uh, exciting opportunities, thinking about. Uh, a limitless sky that's the kind of thing where we have to excite people because there's a lot of alternatives out there these days right where that can capture young people's attention great facilities like this and the curriculums that uh, centennial and other academic institutions offer are a starting point but we as a society have to do something more we i mean when i was at the institute for aerospace studies I used to like going into the archives. They had a scrapbook there. Now we're talking 40 years ago. They had this scrapbook where they put all these newspaper clippings in of the achievements of the students and stuff. In the 50s, late 50s, Canada was working on rockets to fire satellites. They had people who wanted to go to the moon. You know what happened with the Avro Arrow. We lost all that. We don't want to do that again, right? There's great opportunities i mean if you look at uh what uh, elon musk has done right he went down to texas created that star base the, well, star, the star base, base right yes, yes. in less than five years a place which was like deserted uh, beach has turned into massive buildings where they build the, the largest rockets in the world right and he's got a vision he's got the funding He's, he has stimulated uh, the imagination, and people are flocking to that. We have got to do that kind of thing here. We cannot lose what we have, and that's why I'm with DARE. I, I want to give back to the industry. I want to help young people. I don't want to lose that kind of uh, ability and technology in Ontario. But the government also is going to have to help. All these countries where I went, I went to Korea, I've been to China, there was a lot of uh, uh, financial aid. The facilities were second to none. The people needed training. That was what I was doing there. I was training people in China and Korea. Korea, you know, you had Daewoo Heavy Industries, uh, Samsung Aerospace, now they're kind of merging. They were very keen and the government was uh, offering a lot of support. Facilities were going up like it was, the same way SpaceX is doing it. So if you have the vision, you have the financial aid, you have the, uh, the excitement, things can happen. And we have to do that here in Ontario to maintain our ability. We can do things smarter. Uh, we have the ability, we have innovation. Uh, DARE is looking at R&D opportunities, working with uh, SMEs and OEMs. What can we do to, to stimulate all these companies to do better? That's what we're. That's what we're working towards. Yeah, and I think I think a large component of that as well, uh, which we have folks at the institution that do very very well, is it's about awareness and exposure, right? So it's it's making the youth aware of the fabulous career opportunities they there are in the aviation and aerospace sector first and foremost, 
but it's also that exposure to your point to the facilities that are available to the technologies that are used in the sector that the average youth may not have the opportunity to gain exposure to and so i think there's a role for education organizations such as dare business and industry to collectively build that sense of awareness and allow greater opportunities for exposure not too long ago, we had grade sevens and eights. You're right, Spiro. It's about getting, igniting that excitement at a, at a younger age, you know, which happened to many of us, right? You know, if you ask those that are in the sector, you know, it's usually they come from a place of passion uh, coming into this particular uh, field, you know, but getting those grade sevens and eights and having them in the facilities, having them look at the technologies that are being used, getting them using their hands so that they become familiar with the really exciting opportunities they are there are within the sector and we need to do that more we absolutely need to do that more and the other thing is i mean i was at a meeting with some people from centennial some of the deans and the the technology that they were describing i, I was thinking we have to get that out into the industry right the industry doesn't necessarily know about that there have been things that have been done in automotive and other industries that could be very useful in, in aerospace. So that's why it's important to, to create those networks, get that kind of knowledge out and, and start filtering this thing out into the industry so that they can make use of it and become more efficient, reduce their costs or overheads and, and become better, more competitive. Yeah, use of AR VR is a prime example of that, right? I was and just gonna so, say that. Right, you know, as, as so you think about, we talked a little bit earlier about cost and the cost of maintaining aircraft, of manufacturing aircraft and the cost of training individuals for those skills. With the use of AR, VR, all of a sudden that training opportunity becomes really innovative, it becomes engaging, and it reduces your cost of failure or breakage, for example, when you're in a larger environment. So use of AR, VR is one of those technologies I think will be a game changer, not just for training, eventually as part of sort of the technology suite in the sector. Uh, but AR, VR, I think, is, is where training is, is heading. So let's, speaking specifically about DARE, I've attended many of your events, the Green Fund event, but I assume that there are more. You guys are doing a lot all the time. There's, there's various programs, like I mentioned, the Green Fund. I assume there are other programs happening as well with DARE, correct? Yes, yeah. I mean, obviously, the Green Fund was a big one, very successful. Uh, a number of companies there got funding and came up with some very exciting projects. There's also the Supplier Development Initiative, which is uh, basically looking at where there are gaps and how to improve some of these SME-type companies. But we're also looking at uh, R&D opportunities. What can we do uh, to help the OEMs or SMEs get into more R&D type projects to forward the technology. You know, there's lots of exciting stuff happening out there with uh, additive manufacturing and advanced manufacturing processes that need to be pushed into the, uh, into the technology, into the overall technology. So we're supporting those kinds of initiatives and it's very important. But, you know, I myself have some ideas that I would like to push, of course, it's gonna, I have to actually uh, get people on board but for example I'll give you an example I mean um, the materials that go into something like uh, the, the Boeing 787 or like an Airbus uh, A350 you know they're foreign materials 
we could have domestic materials made here. We can have a program that says, you know, we want to have the aircraft of 2050. How are we going to make that, right? It might have really advanced aerodynamics. We've got great uh, people that are designers and so on, but are we going to buy materials from foreign sources? Why don't we develop the material here? We can develop uh, the carbon fiber, make it here, make the resin systems, do the impregnation. That would reduce the carbon footprint, right? We don't have to have shipments from from abroad in aircraft and pay tariffs and custom duties. We would ship it by truck and it would reduce uh, the lead time. You know, companies now that uh, make parts for OEMs, they, they might need 100 yards of a particular, say, car, uh, carbon fiber material. They have to pay setup charges or uh, very specific um, uh, scheduling where the lead time might be 40 weeks. If we have a d domestic uh, supplier dedicated, say, to Canada, which has uh, a very good material, like state-of-the-art, that would be a, a huge development. But, you know, it requires a belief in it, number one, by the OEMs, and then it, the will to actually make it happen. When I visited Boeing in 1989, 1990, they were developing the material for the 787. That was like 10 or 15 years before the material actually went into production. They built hundreds of full-scale parts, did a lot of testing, a lot of this went through all the certification, and by the time the, the aircraft was ready to start the manufacturing, this was a fully developed material. Why can't Canada have a material like that? It's not rocket science, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we would be able to, we have suppliers that can develop that kind of stuff, but it takes time to prove it, develop it, certify it, and we would be able to do it. So it requires a vision, and that's where DARE, when we can get this collaboration, get these companies sitting together and thinking about these things, we can be successful. We're gonna make good use of equipment. That's another thing we're looking at, equipment sharing. So there's lots of things that can be done to increase our competitiveness. It takes a vision, it takes collaboration, it takes setting up the networks. That's what DARE is trying to do, and that's, that's why I believe in it, and that's why I'm here. I like it. I like what you guys are doing. I'm glad you're doing it. And uh, thank you very much for spending some time on the microphones with me, and uh, I can't wait to continue this discussion. Excellent. My all, pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure, too. It was a great honor to be here, uh, talk with Michelle and yourself, and, uh, and you know, try to get the word out in for aerospace technology and and all the good things that are happening at Centennial. Yeah, th thanks very much. We work with, uh, with DARE closely and uh, enjoy the relationship and thrilled to have the conversation with you. Likewise. Thank you so much thanks. to the both of you. Thanks.